Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 29, 2024. The House passes a one-week government funding extension to prevent a partial shutdown that would occur Friday night. Senate is expected to follow either tonight or Friday. With the House and Senate leadership announcing an agreement on a package of six government spending bills that will be voted on next week. But conservative House Republicans in the Freedom Caucus are opposing it. Democratic President Joe Biden and Republican former President Donald Trump, the leading candidates for their party's nomination for president this year, both visit the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, talking about border security and immigration policy. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin testifies before the House Armed Services Committee about why he did not tell the White House, Congress, and the public for days about his hospitalization and transfer of authority to his deputy back in January. He says, I did not handle it right. One Republican House member asked the secretary if he was surprised the president didn't ask for his resignation. White House calls for an investigation into what President Biden labels a tragic and alarming incident where Israeli troops reportedly opened fire on Palestinians in Gaza waiting for food aid. Gazan authorities say more than 100 people were killed. And back in Washington, the House passes a bill which may allow a new stadium for the Commander's NFL team to be built on the site of the former RFK Stadium. And the National Park Service predicts when peak cherry blossom bloom will occur. And we start with the CR, the continuing resolution, the name for the temporary government funding bill to avoid a shutdown. Congressional Quarterly writes that the bill extends current stopgap fiscal year 2024 funding for the federal government extending funding for four spending bills, agriculture, energy and water, military construction, veterans affairs, and transportation, housing and urban development, for an additional week through March 8th, and for the remaining eight spending bills for two weeks through March 22nd. Current stopgap funding for those initial four bills expires Friday night, March 1st at midnight, while funding for the other eight currently set to expire a week later, March 8th. Congressional leaders in a joint statement on Wednesday said the two chambers next week will take up a six-bill package consisting of the four bills slated to expire first, along with the Interior and Commerce Justice Science bills, since they will also be finalized. That was from Congressional Quarterly. The Republican and Democratic leaders of the House Appropriations Committee supported this one-week extension to avoid the shutdown. We start with Kay Granger, Republican from Texas, chair of the committee on the House floor. This bill extends government funding until March 8th for four bills and March 22nd for others. Given the differences between this year's House and Senate bills, we knew finding common ground would not be easy. But we've made progress and we need a few more weeks to finish drafting the bills. We also need to give members adequate time to review them. In the meantime, we can't afford a harmful government shutdown. I urge my colleagues to support this CR, and I reserve the balance of my time. The House Appropriations Committee Chair, Kay Granger, Republican from Texas, today on the House floor. The committee's ranking Democrat, Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut, also supported this short-term funding extension. Mr. Speaker, I rise in support of this continuing resolution, which will provide us with the short short time that's needed to fully conclude the 2024 appropriations process. The continuing resolution keeps the government open 
while the Appropriations Committees in the House and the Senate finalize the 2024 funding bills that are in line with the agreement that has been the law since last June, reaffirmed in the top lines agreed to by Leader Schumer and Speaker Johnson earlier this year. While at the time of passing our last continuing resolution, I had hoped that we would not need this measure. You know, we owe it to the American people to do our due diligence in reaching the end of this process. I appreciate the respectful bipartisan cooperation that took place to put forward this continuing resolution and move us closer to the finish line. There is now a shared understanding that the ultimate conclusion to the saga of 2024 funding will be in the appropriations bills that earn the support of Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate, bills that will likely need to pass under suspension of the rules, like the bill we are considering today. In addition to passing the 12 appropriations bills, Congress still must respond to President Biden's request for our urgent national security needs. There is no time to waste. We must quickly provide support for Ukraine in their fight against Russian tyranny. We must provide support for our Indo-Pacific and Middle East allies. And crucially, we cannot wait any longer to provide humanitarian aid for the civilians caught in the crossfire of these conflicts. Without the swift action, the legacy of this Congress will be the destruction of Ukraine the appeasement of a dictator, and the abandonment of starving children and ailing families. We must come to a bipartisan compromise and show the American people that Congress is still able to address urgent needs, show the world that America is still unwavering as a defender of democracy wherever it is being fought for. Congress must avoid a shutdown. We must enact full-year spending bills and emergency assistance for our national security and deliver for the American people as soon as possible. To those ends, let this be our last continuing resolution. Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, Democrat from Connecticut and the ranking member on the Appropriations Committee today on the House floor. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, spoke against the short-term government funding extension and the full-year funding agreement for the Six of the 12 annual spending bills announced by Speaker Mike Johnson and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer expected to be voted on the floor next week. Madam Speaker, here we are again, kicking the can down the road and for other purposes. Buying more time so that we can spend more money that we don't have at a time when we are going to eclipse more interest, more spending on interest than our national defense this year. And by 2026, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars on interest we're going to continue to spend monies at the Nancy Pelosi spending level of an omnibus bill that Republicans roundly oppose. That is what is happening on the floor of the United States House right now. We are going to continue funding this government at Nancy Pelosi's omnibus spending level. That is a level that will continue, by the way, to fund all of the priorities we oppose. We're going to continue to fund the open borders that led to the death of Americans. We're going to continue to fund the United Nations at $12.5 billion that is undermining our freedom, working against us to move people illegally into the United States. We're going to fund UNRWA, which is funding Hamas, an enemy of Israel. We're going to fund the IRS that's targeting Americans. We're going to fund the Department of Justice that is targeting former President Trump. We are going to do that today here on the floor of the House of Representatives, rather than exercising the power of the purse, the James Madison 
articulated in Federalist 58 that this body, this body is supposed to check an out of control executive branch. That is what is happening today. And we should oppose it. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas, the short-term government funding bill, one-week extension, the CR, the continuing resolution, passed the House by a vote of 320 to 99. The no's were 97 Republicans and two Democrats, Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts and Mike Quigley of Illinois. The bill now heads to the Senate, expected to pass either tonight or tomorrow to avoid that shutdown. Chip Roy is a member of the House Freedom Caucus, and an article from TheHill.com reads, the head of the hardline House Freedom Caucus is bashing the nascent funding agreement hashed out by leaders of both parties, warning that conservatives would be willing to force a government shutdown to secure steeper cuts in policy preferences. Congressman Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, has led the charge among the far-right lawmakers, urging Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, to fight for scores of conservative policy riders to accompany the 2024 spending bills. Absent that, those Republicans want the Speaker to champion a stopgap bill, known as a continuing resolution, to extend government funding at current 2023 levels through the remainder of the fiscal year, which ends October 1st. The latter strategy would trigger an automatic 1% cut to federal programs of all types, beginning May 1st. That was from The Hill. House Speaker Mike Johnson was asked at a news conference today about criticism of the government funding deal. How do you respond to criticisms from some of your members saying that they have been left in the dark and haven't been seeing a transparent process when it comes to government funding? Yeah, so look, the appropriations process is is ugly. Democracy is ugly. Um, This is the way it works every year, always has, except that we've instituted some new innovations. We broke the omnibus fever, right? That's how Washington has been run for years. We're, we're, we're trying to turn the aircraft carrier back to real budgeting and spending reform. This was an important thing, to break it up into smaller pieces. We've been working on uh, separate individual appropriations bills, 12 appropriations bills. The, our, our appropriations committee and the, the cardinals, who are, as you know, the, the chairs of the subcommittees of appropriations, have had hands on the wheel. All the uh, members and staff have been working around the clock. They have been for weeks to get this done. Uh, and we were able to uh, have that innovation to break it up. So what we're doing is it, by having the laddered CR approach and the laddered approach is that you have separate uh, tranches of bills instead of one big omnibus that nobody can read or understand or have a process in. This has been a long, deliberate process. The House, as you know, passed 80 percent of our bills through the House. 80 percent of federal funding came through the the House. The Senate passed three bills, right? We did. The House did our work. Most of them made their way all the way through committee, the other other remaining four bills. Um, So members did have a say. They had a, a process in that. When it gets down to the final negotiation of the final provisions in each of them, that's a smaller subset of members because it's complicated and complex. But that bill text is going to be posted this weekend. All of our members will have 72 hours to review it. That's our commitment. That's our rule. We're respecting it. And that's the only reason we need the process CR to allow us time to do that. If I did it the way, I don't know, Speaker Pelosi did, we just drop that bill and vote on it within hours, right? We're not going to do that. We want members to be able to have their review and their say and to see all of that. Um, It's been a long road to get here. Uh, This is a bipartisan agreement in the end, but it sticks to the numbers, uh, the agreement on spending. It does not go above that. It will increase a bit defense spending, but there will be uh, real cuts to 
uh, non-defense uh, discretionary spending, because that's what was agreed upon, and that's what we're going to adhere to. The remaining six appropriations bills will be finalized ahead of the March 22nd deadline. And then what I'm very excited about and anxious to do is turn the page on FY24 and get immediately into FY25 and that process to change the way that's done, to, to back it up on the calendar, to do everything we can to get that job done by end of summer so that we're not coming up at the end of September, the end of the fiscal year, and having to talk about you know, CRs and omnibuses and everything. We're gonna, we are going to do everything we can to turn that aircraft carrier around, and we're going to try to make it happen. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, at a news conference today on Capitol Hill. He was also asked about the $95 billion National Security Supplemental Aid Package funding Ukraine, Israel, the Palestinians, and Taiwan. The Senate has passed it and is pending in the House. He said the House is actively considering options on a path forward. But our first responsibility is to fund the government. Speaker Johnson has said in the past that U.S. border security needs to be part of any bill that funds Ukraine. And speaking of border security, from USA Today, the long-anticipated standoff between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump finally happened Thursday, not on a debate stage, but along 325 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. The two political rivals, Trump is the likely GOP presidential nominee who will face Biden in November, staged separate visits to the southern border in Texas to draw attention to immigration and border security, now the leading issue for voters. That was from USA Today. President Biden went to Brownsville, Donald Trump to Eagle Pass. Donald Trump spoke first. But this is a Joe Biden invasion. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. I call him Crooked Joe because he's crooked. He's a terrible president, the worst president our country's ever had, uh, probably the most incompetent president we've ever had. But it's uh, allowing thousands and thousands of people to come in from China, Iran, Yemen, the Congo, Syria, and a lot of other nations. Many nations are not very friendly to us. He's transported the entire columns of uh, fighting-aged men, and they're all at a certain age, and you look at them, and say, they, they look like warriors to me. Something's going on that's bad. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. It's migrant crime. We call it Biden migrant crime, but that's a little bit long, so we'll just leave it. But every time you hear the term migrant crime, you know where that comes from, allowing Thousands and thousands and actually millions and millions of people to come. Could be 15 million, could be 18 million by the time he uh, gets out of office, because hopefully the biggest risk we have is nine months. That's a long time. Right. A lot of bad things can happen. As I always say in speeches and rallies, it's if you take the 10 worst presidents in the history of our country and you added them all up, all of the problems, all of the lousy jobs they've done, you can add them all up. It's not as bad as this one man has done for our country. What he's done to our country is he's destroying our country. Uh, we were just talking before. We were, the general was saying, I can't believe, he can't believe what's happening. He can't believe it. it's so sad. Last year, almost half of all ICE arrests were criminal aliens charged for more than 33,000 assaults, 3,000 robberies, 6,900 burglaries, 7,500 weapons crimes. This is all migrant crime. 4,300 sex crimes, 1,600 kidnappings, and 1,700 homicides and murders. These are the people that are coming into our country. And they're coming from jails, and they're coming from prisons, and they're coming from mental institutions, and they're coming from insane asylums, and they're terrorists. They're being 
let into our, our country. Donald Trump, former president and 2024 Republican presidential candidate in Eagle Pass, Texas, on the U.S.-Mexico border. He mentioned the general. He was joined by the Texas adjutant general, head of the National Guard. Also there, the president of the National Border Patrol Council and the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who made some remarks. As President Trump just talked, there were four policies that he put in place that led to the lowest illegal border crossings in about four decades. The end of catch and release, the Title 42 policy, the Remain in Mexico policy, and building the border wall. All Joe Biden had to do to secure the border was to keep in place what President Trump put in place in the first place. But instead, what Joe Biden did, he signed executive orders eliminating all of the effective policies that President Trump put in place. Governor Greg Abbott, Republican from Texas, with former president and presidential candidate Donald Trump in Eagle Pass, Texas. Associated Press article reads, a federal judge on Thursday blocked a new Texas law that gives police broad powers to arrest migrants suspected of illegally entering the U.S., dealing a victory to the Biden administration in its feud with Republican Governor Greg Abbott over immigration enforcement. President Biden today was in Brownsville, Texas, joined by the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And the president again made a pitch for a bipartisan border security and immigration agreement that was brought up in the U.S. Senate, but was blocked by Senate Republicans. The Speaker of the House needs to put this bill on the floor because if he put it on the floor unrestricted, it would pass. The majority of Democrats and Republicans in both houses support this legislation until someone came along and said, don't do that, it'll benefit the incumbent. That's a hell of a way to do business in America for such a serious problem. We need to act. It's time for the speakers and some of my Republican friends in Congress who are blocking this bill to show a little spine. Pass a bipartisan board, bipartisan, as remember, bipartisan, conservative leaders supported this border security bill. Let's remember who we work for, for God's sake. We work for the American people. Let me end with this. I understand my predecessors in Eagle Pass today. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know. It's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Let's remember who the heck we work for. We work for the American people, not the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. We work for the American people. President Biden in Brownsville, Texas, that bipartisan border security deal he mentioned that was negotiated in the U.S. Senate and was brought up for a vote attached to the foreign aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, Palestinians, and Taiwan, but did not get the 60 votes needed in the Senate to advance, would tighten some asylum rules, allow partial border shutdowns and increase enforcement, and open some new paths for legal migration. This is Washington Today.
Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin writes USA Today in his first congressional hearing since his health crisis related to prostate cancer faced blistering criticism Thursday for failing to notify lawmakers, the White House, and the American public about his hospitalization last month. Secretary Austin reiterated to Congress on Thursday that he has taken responsibility for poor communication and has apologized for not being fully transparent about his hospitalization. Lawmakers, though, said more accountability was needed. That was reporting from USA Today. C-SPAN covered this hearing. Here's a bit of the secretary's opening statement before the House Armed Services Committee. There was never any lapse in authorities or in command and control. At all times, either I or the deputy secretary was in a position to conduct the duties of my office. But we did have a breakdown in notifications during my January stay at Walter Reed, and that is sharing my location and why I was here. And back in December, I should have promptly informed the president, my team in Congress, and the American people of my, of my cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment. Again, we did not handle this right, and I did not handle it right. As you know, I've apologized, including directly to the president, and I take full responsibility. I'm also taking responsibility for some institutional changes to make sure that this cannot happen again. It's not enough for me to pledge to do better. The system must be postured better to make the appropriate notifications when authorities are transferred. And my staff must be ready to carry all of this out. But let me be clear, I never intended to keep my hospitalization from the White House or from anybody else. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, part of his opening statement to the House Armed Services Committee, He is 70 years old. On New Year's Day, he was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center's critical care unit from complications from treatment the month before after a cancer diagnosis. And then there was a three-day delay in notifying the White House. Congressman Jim Banks, Republican from Indiana, asked the secretary today why there should not be more severe consequences. One year ago, you told me in this hearing room you had no regrets about what happened in Afghanistan. Do you, re- do you regret what happened here? I- I've said that uh, we didn't get this right, uh, uh, co- Congressman, and uh, we put measures in place to ensure that the notification process uh, is improved going forward. Mr. Secretary, we, who, who will be held the, accountable? The transfer of authority uh, was... Uh, who will happened. be held accountable for this? This, Again, embar- this embarrassment. Again, I take full responsibility, and we put measures in place to, uh, uh, to address uh, the, uh, the shortcomings. Are you surprised the president didn't call for your resignation? I'm surprised, but are you surprised that he didn't call for your the resignation? The president has expressed, expressed full faith and confidence in me. So you're not surprised that he didn't call for your resignation. Is it typical that the president would go three days without talking to his secretary of defense? Is that typical? Or is that a regular posture? Do you usually go days without talking to the commander? I mean, that can happen. It depends on if, whether or not the president's uh, on, on, uh, on travel, if I'm on travel. Uh, there are times when we, we do go days without direct communication. So the, the big issue for me here is either the president is that aloof or you are irrelevant. Which one is it, Mr. Secretary? That you would go three, That the president would go three days without knowing that his secretary of defense is, is not on the job. It's neither. Uh, the president is not aloof, and uh, and I am. Uh, I participate in uh, in all of the. Uh, uh, let, let me ask you this: well, On problem. January second, while you were in the hospital, President Biden was vacationing in the Caribbean, 
Your deputy, who the president didn't even know had operational control, was on a beach in Puerto Rico. What kind of message does that send to our adversaries? Uh, the key piece is that, number one, uh, the deputy has uh, the ability to, uh, uh, she has access to secure communications. She has the ability to participate in decision-making uh, processes from wherever she is. Mr. Secretary, our, 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 our adversaries should fear us, and what you've done has embarrassed us. And let, let me sum this up by this. A leading Chinese propaganda outlet said that what, hap what happened to you exposed, quote, internal chaos. A leading Russian propaganda outlet said that your disappearance, quote, effectively compromised the gentleman's time's expired. Chair, I recognize the gentleman. Congressman Jim Banks, Republican from Indiana, questioning Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at today's Armed Services Committee hearing. Runs about two hours, and you can find the full video at our website, cspan.org. Back to the USA Today article, a Pentagon report on the matter issued Monday did not recommend that anybody be disciplined, finding that there was no ill intent or obfuscation in delaying notification of Austin's incapacitation. It did endorse formal procedures adopted last month by the Pentagon to notify the White House, Congress and senior military officials immediately when the defense secretary transfers his or her authority. The Alabama House of Representatives passed a bill today that would give in vitro fertilization, IVF, service providers civil and criminal immunity from prosecution or legal action related to goods and services they provide. The vote was 94 to 6 with three abstentions. The bill now heads to the Alabama Senate. This is all in response to the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling a few weeks ago that frozen embryos could be considered children legally. In Washington, Senator Tammy Duckworth, Democrat from Illinois, tried and failed on Wednesday to pass her bill providing federal protections for IVF access. She asked unanimous consent to pass it, and Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi, objected on the Senate floor. Today, Congresswoman Lois Frankel, Democrat from Florida, chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus, held a news conference to talk about a similar House bill. We are here in response to the Alabama Supreme Court case ruling that frozen embryos are babies. And this has caused IVF clinics in Alabama to hold services in fear of liability and causing heartbreak and additional expense to families seeking fertility treatment. Our message today is clear. Reproductive freedom means that women must be able to access the health care they need to control their own lives and their future. That means women, not politicians, should be in charge of whether, when, and how to either grow or start a family. And that includes access to contraception, to abortion, and to IVF. And we know that freedom, a reproductive freedom, is under attack by extreme Republicans. The Alabama case is not an aberration. It's a warning of things to come. In Congress, there are 125 House Republicans support legislation that would bore, ban abortion nationwide and define life at the moment of fertilization with no exception for IVF. Now, isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Republicans want to force women to stay pregnant against their will or while also preventing women who want to get pregnant from doing so. And they want to penalize doctors who perform abortions and penalize them for helping women start a family.
And that's why we're all here to announce uh, uh, in our fight for reproductive freedom uh, to support legislation that protects the use of IVF nationwide. Congresswoman Lois Frankel, Democrat from Florida, chair of the Democratic Women's Caucus with other members of the caucus at a news conference today on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, was asked about IVF at his news conference today. There are obviously many critical issues to American life that you all are debating and discussing. On IVF, do you favor a bill to protect IVF, and do you believe discarding embryos is murder? Um, Look, I believe in the sanctity of of every human life, always have, and because of that, I support IVF and its availability. If you look at the the statistics, it's really an amazing thing. Since the technology became available in, I think, the 70s, maybe the mid-70s, an estimated 8 million births uh, in the U.S. uh, have been brought about because of that technology. I have, Kelly and I have uh, many close friends who have had trouble with fertility issues, and they, they've, they've had beautiful families as a result of IVF. And so it needs to be readily available. It needs to be something that every American supports, and uh, it needs to be uh, handled in an ethical manner. Um, so we'll continue to support that. I, I don't think there's a single person uh, in the Republican conference who disagrees with that statement, and there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about it, but it's something I think we ought to support. House Speaker Mike Johnson at his news conference. Senator Katie Britt, Republican of Alabama, will be delivering the Republican response to President Joe Biden's State of the Union address on March 7th. She took office last year, first woman elected to the Senate from Alabama and the youngest Republican woman ever elected to the Senate. She's 42 years old. She posted on X, I'm truly honored and grateful for the opportunity to speak directly to my fellow Americans on March 7th. We'll have a candid conversation about the future of our nation, and I'll outline the Republican vision to secure the American dream for generations to come. Wall Street today, the Dow up 47, NASDAQ up 144, S&P up 26. From Bloomberg News, the Federal Reserve's preferred gauge of underlying inflation rose in January at the fastest pace in nearly a year, helping explain policymakers' patient approach to start cutting interest rates, the so-called Core Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, which strips out the volatile food and energy components, increased 0.4% from December. Data out Thursday showed. That was from Bloomberg News. Today in the Senate, failure to override President Biden's veto of legislation repealing a Federal Highway Administration rule waiving Buy America requirements for electric vehicle chargers. A two-thirds vote was needed. It got 50 votes. Yes, 47 no. In the House today, legislation extending Federal Aviation Administration programs that are set to expire March 8th. The extension now till May 10th. The vote there was 401 to 19. That bill now heads to the Senate. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, it's Nate from C-SPAN. Imagine, 45 years ago when there were just a handful of television networks, C-SPAN first went on the air, bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Shannon from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of over four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. You can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. 
Thank you for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gift of support. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. President Joe Biden and Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Ahmad Al Thani of Qatar, writes CNN, discussed the tragic and alarming incident that left more than 100 people killed in Gaza, according to the health ministry in the Strip. The White House said on Thursday, both leaders grieved the loss of civilian lives and agreed that this incident underscored the urgency of bringing negotiations to a close as soon as possible and expanding the flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza, the White House said in a readout of a call between two leaders. More than 100 people were killed during the chaos when Israeli troops opened fire and triggered panic as hungry Palestinian civilians were gathering around food aid trucks, Palestinian officials and eyewitnesses said. That was reporting from CNN. The White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton was asked about this as she and reporters and the president flew on Air Force One. I think right before we took off, the president uh, talked to reporters on the South Lawn about uh, reports of the uh, over 100 dead in Gaza. After, um, Can you tell us a little bit about it? Has the president been briefed on the situation? What's the latest? Yes, he's been briefed on the situation, and I'd just like to make a few points about this. Obviously, the events in northern Gaza are tremendously alarming and of deep concern to us, deeply tragic, the loss of human life. Um, too many civilian lives have been lost as a consequence of military operations um, in Gaza. Uh, We think that this latest event needs to be thoroughly investigated. We've been in touch with the government of Israel this morning uh, about to gather information and to request that they investigate and provide more information about the circumstances that led to this tragedy. We also think that this event underscores the need for expanded humanitarian aid to make its way into Gaza. may be aware our USAID administrator Samantha Power is in the region right now doing just that, working on uh, delivering additional resources she announced yesterday for humanitarian aid, also meeting with a variety of stakeholders in the region about trying to open up additional humanitarian corridors in addition uh, to the two that are currently serving um, uh, as corridors for humanitarian aid into the region. But beyond that, you know, we have consistently uh, and vocally communicated uh, to our Israeli counterparts the need for there to be um, viable plans to maintain basic security in areas of Gaza where their military campaigns against and military operations against Hamas have concluded. Uh, We have consistently also communicated a desire to see that those plans move forward and we have yet to see those uh, be implemented and we're deeply concerned about that. once again today, we're making uh, making clear to our Israeli counterparts that we'd like to see those plans implemented very soon and um, and provide for the basic security of the Palestinian people because the continued loss of life is uh, deeply alarming and very, um, very, very tragic. Olivia Dalton, Principal White House Deputy Press Secretary, holding a news conference on Air Force One as she and the president flew to Texas. In Washington, D.C., on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol building, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, led a news conference with other House Democrats calling again for the U.S. to support a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. We know, many of us from just even in our district, that the majority of the American people are with us in demanding an immediate ceasefire. 
This isn't a fringe position, y'all. It's the will of the people. I know in Michigan, 53% of our residents in Michigan support a ceasefire. 74% of them are Michigan Democrats and 64% of them are independents, all again supporting a ceasefire. People all around the world from all different backgrounds, faiths, ethnicities, have seen what is happening in Gaza and have decided that they can no longer remain silent. Over the past few weeks, we've heard a lot about how the president and his administration are concerned and troubled by the Israeli government's actions. We're here to tell him, so are we. And yet again, once again, we are continuing though to veto resolutions at the United Nations for a third time calling for immediate lasting ceasefire. We're asking, please, let's go ahead and now prioritize Palestinian lives and again, saving the lives that are there, many of them women and children. I want you all to know in Southern Gaza, Netanyahu has already promised to invade Rafah, even if there is a temporary ceasefire. I'm repeating this. In Southern Gaza, Netanyahu has already promised to invade Rafah, even if there's a temporary ceasefire. Rafah, as many of us know, and many of us have talked to advocates and families, Rafah is where 1.5 million Palestinian families are displaced without food, clean water, and shelter. And calling for a temporary ceasefire is not enough. We all here are saying we need a permanent solution to this. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan, outside the U.S. Capitol building, a news conference with other House Democrats. She said during the news conference that she fears another Donald Trump presidency, but when asked whether she will vote for Joe Biden for president, she would not say one way or the other. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, with a press release that reads, Senator Paul plans to force a vote as early as today on a resolution that would prohibit the sale of F-16 fighter jets and other military supplies to Turkey, a $23 billion package that the Biden administration approved last month. Paul's opposition to the sale is a result of concerns over Ankara's record of alleged human rights abuses domestically and what Paul says is destabilizing and dangerous behavior in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, as well as a pattern of acting against the rule of law and U.S. interests. That was the press release from Senator Paul. Here he is on the Senate floor on this resolution. What we have here is a clear case of quid pro quo. If Turkey releases its hold on Sweden's membership in NATO, then Turkey gets America's F-16s. You may remember the last time we had a famous case of quid pro quo here. Boy, everybody was all up in a lather and they said we have to impeach Donald Trump because it's a quid pro quo. Apparently it depends on what the quid is and what the quo is. Quid pro quo, though, is actually more the norm than it is actually the exception. The speakers you've seen here today were adamantly against Turkey and adamantly against them getting the F-35 because they possess a Russian defensive weapon system that may well allow exploitation and allow Americans to become more vulnerable. But now they're adamantly for it because they got Sweden into NATO. Thank God Sweden's in NATO. We can all rest easy. Rewarding Turkey, though, with the sale of $23 billion worth of F-16 fighters, though, has some repercussions, and we should think about it before we do it. I maintained that there are deep concerns about the sale, as it was initially proposed way back in 2021, and I've maintained my opposition, given Turkey's dismal human rights accord, its unreliable behavior as a NATO ally, and its disruptive military actions in the Middle East, the Caucasus, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Congress must not serve as a rubber stamp for President Biden's side deals, 
The quid pro quo to expand NATO should not come at the expense of rewarding the alliance's most embarrassing member. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, on the Senate floor. Senator Jim Risch, Republican from Idaho, ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee, spoke against this resolution to discharge Senator Paul's bill blocking the F-16 sale, bringing it to the floor. For a long, long time, uh, Turkey uh, held up the uh, accession of those two countries into NATO. As a result of that, I held up the, uh, the F-16 uh, purchases the, that they wanted to make. Uh, negotiations went on for a long time. We were made promise after promise. The promises were broken. Uh, but finally, uh, they did roll over uh, earlier uh, this year, late last year, and allowed uh, the accession of both uh, uh, Sweden and Finland. Um, the result of that was uh, that we agreed that we would do what they wanted to do with the F-16s. This particular resolution, uh, uh, SJ Res 60, uh, really undoes that agreement. And uh, I can fully understand people's, uh, people, senators, being upset with Turkey for this and a long list of other uh, complaints that we have. Uh, but a deal's a deal. Senator Jim Risch, Republican from Idaho, today on the Senate floor. Final vote on this resolution, motion to discharge the bill blocking the sale of the F-16s from committee, bringing it to the floor, brought by Senator Paul. Can't give you the final vote because it has not happened yet. The vote started at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, and as we head to air in the 5 o'clock hour Eastern time, the vote is still open. But the unofficial tally, the yeses are 13 and the noes are 78, so it is likely that when the final vote is called, it will have failed. From the Associated Press, the United States expects to face fast-moving threats to American elections this year as artificial intelligence and other technological advances have made interference and meddling easier than before, FBI Director Christopher Wray said Thursday. The director spoke at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance Conference in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. One threat where intelligence-driven team approaches are absolutely vital, is the threat that foreign adversaries pose to our free and fair elections. Now, the U.S., as everyone here knows, has confronted foreign malign influence threats in the past, but this election cycle, the U.S. will face more adversaries moving at a faster pace and enabled by new technology. Advances in generative AI, for instance, are lowering the barrier to entry, making it easier for both more and less sophisticated foreign adversaries to engage in malign influence, while making foreign influence efforts efforts by players both old and new more realistic and more difficult to detect. FBI Director Christopher Wray at a national security conference in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. CNN article about his speech reads that Director Ray also spoke about non-election-related threats, saying the FBI was intensely focused on a range of cyber and national security threats from the Chinese government. And as for Iran, the FBI director said that Tehran has been more brazen over the last few years than I've seen in my career. This is Washington Today. 
From the Washington Post, after a rare bipartisan push to help Washington, D.C., a bill that would allow the city to redevelop the eyesore that is the defunct RFK Stadium cleared the House on Wednesday with overwhelming support. The bill, the D.C. RFK Memorial Stadium Campus Revitalization Act, passed by a vote of 348 to 55. Should it pass, the Senate legislation will allow D.C. to turn the federally owned riverfront plot into an attractive mixed-use development that could include commercial and residential uses and possibly a new stadium for the Washington Commanders, which D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, a Democrat, is pursuing. That was from the Washington Post. The D.C. congressional delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton, also a Democrat, is an original sponsor. And during the floor debate, she responded to a Democratic opponent, Glenn Ivey of Maryland. Mr. Speaker, I rise in opposition to H.R. 4984, the D.C. Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium Campus Revitalization Act. Like other members of the Maryland delegation, I believe Prince George's County in Maryland should be able to compete on a level playing field to keep the Washington commanders. But this bill would give an unfair advantage to D.C. It's most certainly not a level playing field when one interested jurisdiction receives a free transfer of federal government subsidized land. I'm not opposed to D.C. bidding to be the new home of the Washington Commanders, but its pursuit of the Commanders should be no different than its efforts to compete with Virginia for the Wizards and the Capitals. This is also a bad deal for federal taxpayers. This bill transfers control over federal government property at no apparent cost to the District of Columbia so that private ownership can build a football stadium. This is not a District of Columbia home rule issue. This is no different than any other city or state competing for a sports franchise or stadium. No different than the state of New Jersey competing with the state of New York for the Jets or the Giants. I do not object also to the redevelopment or renovation of the current RFK campus. Uh, I, I think it would be outstanding to have new housing, retail use, and park space there. Matter of fact, I live near the stadium and drive by it every day. But I do not believe a cost-free land transfer, largely for stadium purposes, provides the best opportunity to achieve these goals. I ask my colleagues to oppose this bill, and I yield back. The gentleman from Maryland yields back. The gentlelady from D.C. is recognized. I reserve, Mr. The gentlelady reserved. gentleman from New York is recognized. Uh, I have no further speakers, and I'm prepared to close. The gentleman reserved. The gentleman from D.C. is recognized. Mr. Speaker, I would like to respond to the comments from my friend from Maryland. The National Park Service has a maintenance backlog of $23 billion, including $2 billion in the District of Columbia alone. The National Park Service does not have the money to transform the RFK Stadium site from acres of asphalt into parks or mixed uses. There is precedent for Congress giving title to or administration jurisdiction over federal land to states and other jurisdictions for no consideration. We do not have to look far for examples. Let's look at two of the many examples in D.C. First, Section 8124 of Title 40 of the U.S. Code has long permitted the federal government to transfer administrative jurisdiction over federal land in D.C. to the D.C. government for no consideration. Second, in 1986, Congress directed the Department of Interior to enter into a 50-year lease with D.C. for the RFK stadium site for no consideration. 
while it is true that H.R. 4984 does not require D.C. to pay the federal government for administrative jurisdiction over the RFK Stadium site, it is expected D.C. It is expected DC will spend hundreds of millions of dollars transforming the site from acres of asphalt into mixed-use development. This bill would not require a stadium to be built at the site. Whether to build a stadium would be a decision for the elected D.C. government. Several members of the D.C. Council have expected opposition to a new football stadium at the site. Congressional delegate from Washington, D.C., Eleanor Holmes Norton, a Democrat. And before that, you heard from Congressman Glenn Ivey, a Democrat of Maryland on the House floor. The bill passed 348 to 55. The no votes included seven of eight members of the Maryland delegation, one Republican and six Democrats. Also a note that Eleanor Holmes Norton, as a delegate to Congress, actually was not able to vote on the bill. Washington Post article has this. The vote of Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, was not recorded. But when asked by a reporter why he did not vote, Raskin ran back to the House chamber to try to remedy that. He said he intended to vote no. This bill now heads to the Senate. The National Park Service says that peak bloom of the cherry blossom trees in Washington, D.C., many around the Tidal Basin, will be early again this year, March 23rd through the 26th. Jeff Reimbold, Superintendent, National Mall and Memorial Parks at the Park Service, said this was not easy to figure out. Determining the dates for peak bloom is one of the great puzzles in the nation's capital. Every year, we take different pieces of data, such as long-term forecasts, historical records, and the appearance of the trees, an attempt to place them together in a way that will reveal a picture of when peak bloom will occur. Emerging from the warmest January on record, this has been a particularly puzzling year to read the trees and establish a projected date for peak bloom. Once again, due to the warmer than average temperatures, the trees never reach dormancy, which is what we use to calculate when the blooms will emerge. Additionally, our secret indicator tree is showing several different phases of the blooms reflecting the wide range of temperatures we've had from the 70s yesterday to this morning's sub-freezing temperatures. This feels like a big disclaimer, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we are seeing the effects of both warmer and highly variable temperatures on the trees. Nonetheless, the puzzle pieces are falling into place and tell us when we expect 70% of the Yoshino cherry trees will be in bloom. Cherry trees blossom development is dependent on a number of variables, including the weather conditions. So our horticulturalists will be monitoring the bud development and reporting out any updates we have. Reminder that this forecast is the window during which the trees are expected to first bloom, to first reach peak bloom. And if the weather conditions are just right, that could last uh, for up to 10 days. So enough with the buildup. Uh, the projected dates for the 2024 National Cherry Blossom Festival are March 23rd through March 26th. So regardless of when the blossoms are open, we have a full month of flowers and festivities to look forward to during the National Cherry Blossom Festival. Jeff Reimbold, Superintendent, National Mall and Memorial Parks at the Park Service at a news conference today in Washington. The Park Service says there are about 3,800 cherry trees in 
the D.C. area. The annual Cherry Blossom Festival is March 20th through April 14th. It commemorates Japan's gifts of the cherry trees to the U.S. originally in 1912. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter word for word and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. Thank you.